Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. You know how sometimes you start thinking about an idea and then suddenly it seems like that idea is showing up everywhere in your life? Well, for me, I've been thinking about how telling an individual's story in great and exacting detail can illuminate common truths. I've been reading George Saunders' incredible book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, where he analyzes Russian short stories. And this is a point that he makes, that Russian authors use the story of one man or woman to tell the story of many people. And then recently, we interviewed Azar Nafisi, the author of Reading Lolita in Tehran, for an upcoming episode. And she makes the same point, among many others, about the works of Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison. Now, that idea is front of mind again with our guest today, journalist Justin Fenton, who's the author of the book We Own This City, A True Story of Crime, Cops, and Corruption, which is the basis for the HBO miniseries of the same name. We Own This City is the shocking story of a massive police corruption scandal that took place in Baltimore. The city had been struggling with high rates of violent crime for decades when the Baltimore Police Department established the Gun Trace Task Force in 2007. Led by Sergeant Wayne Jenkins, the Gun Trace Task Force was a unit of plainclothes police officers whose mandate was to go after gun traffickers by conducting long-term sophisticated investigations. Instead, the officers mainly patrolled the streets, stopping people and trying to get as many guns as they could off of people individually. They abused their power to steal money, to steal drugs that they sometimes resold, to plant evidence, and to lie about their activities, which were, in many instances, unconstitutional. The story broke in 2017, two years after the murder of Freddie Gray, another tragedy that rocked the city. In telling this story, Justin uses the details of what took place in Baltimore to paint a broader picture of the war on drugs, police corruption, the relationship between politics and policing, the struggles between law enforcement and the communities they serve, and the suffering of those communities. Clearly, there's a lot to discuss here. Yeah. But just a few words about Justin before we get to the interview. Justin Fenton is an investigative reporter for the Baltimore Banner, a new nonprofit dedicated to supporting local journalism. He previously spent 17 years at the Baltimore Sun, covering the criminal justice system. He was part of the Pulitzer Prize finalist team for the coverage of the death of Freddie Gray and was a two-time finalist for the National Livingston Award for Young Journalists. We started by asking Justin to tell us the story of a man named Oris Stevenson to illustrate the kinds of crimes that Wayne Jenkins and the Gun Trace Task Force committed. Here's what he said. In that particular case, um, this was someone who they came upon on the street. Jenkins was driving the, the wrong way on a one-way street and pulled over Oris Stevenson and another man. Uh, they found uh, a large amount of cash in the car and drugs. And they then uh, went about, you know, trying to figure out where where he lived and went to multiple locations before entering his home without a warrant. And uh, they found a safe containing, a, 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 I think, about $200,000 in cash. They cracked that safe open, saw the, the money, took half of it out, and then sort of closed it back up and started filming with, a, with an iPhone 
you know, as if this was the first time the safe was being opened. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody was sort of putting on, you know, oh my gosh, wow, look at all that money. <laughs> and Jenkins goes out of his way to say, you know, don't touch it. Keep recording. We're going to do this by the book. We're going to call the feds. Keep keep the camera on that, 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 that cash. Um, but it was half of the amount that was really there. And the officers went back and split it up. And it was just a good example of sort of how, you know, they knew how to manipulate the system. You know, th- this video was purportedly to show that they had done the right thing when, in fact, you know, the whole thing was concocted. And how widespread was this kind of corruption? You know, how often did crimes like this happen, not just among the Gun Trace Task Force members, but throughout the department more generally? Yeah, I mean, that was the really damning thing about this whole case. You know, the officers who cooperated with the government, who took the stand to talk about what they had done and why, you know, they said that this was widespread, maybe not breaking open safes and stealing $100,000, but this idea of, you know, quote unquote, taxing people, you know, when they came upon what they thought was drug money or, or just just cash in somebody's pocket that it was commonplace for them to take some of it or to take all of it. Um, you know, the officers said that, you know, this was something you did to sort of fit in. Um, you know, other officers say that's crazy. That's not widespread. That's maybe widespread among their the circles that they ran in, but that it certainly isn't pervasive. And it became hard for the public to sort of accept that when we had officers charged with and admitting to literally years and years and years of regular crimes, you know, regular casual misconduct that went on for a long period of time. And so I think the, the effect of this case overall was to make people wonder, gosh, you know, how often does this happen? Is everybody in on it? Who, who's, who's in on it? Who's not in on it? You know, what do people know or what should they have known? And that was something I tried to tackle in the book. But, you know, it's a big open question. In the book, you describe police officers who, and I'm quoting you, need to get into something. They want to sit in vacant houses, peering through binoculars or chase suspects through alleys. They work ungodly amounts of overtime. These are the, quote unquote, 10% whom commanders in the Baltimore Police Department rely on to get the job done. They're also the officers most likely to make up the plainclothes units known around town as knockers or jump out boys, a reference to their aggressive tactics. I have a bunch of questions about this. First, when commanders talk about how they rely on this 10% to get the job done, are they just talking about arrests or are they talking about convictions and actually getting guns off the streets? That's a great question. Uh, I I think what they're referring to is that I've heard police commanders say this, that they feel as though the majority of the force are sort of there to get a paycheck. They show up, they ride around, they do what they're supposed to, they answer calls, but you know they're not these sort of high achievers that these other units are. The, the people who end up in those units are the ones who excel. Um, they go the extra mile, they try to write search warrants, and you know they end up in these units where they're all sort of around the, the same type of, you know, I guess, uh, A personalities. But yeah, I mean, that's a, your question hits on an important point, which was, you know, getting guns, making arrests was usually seen as a good day's work. And the follow up as to what came of these cases uh, was just not there. My analysis of, uh, you know, Wayne Jenkins's gun cases showed that almost half of them were being dropped. The prosecutors were throwing them out or they were being acquitted because it wasn't quality work. But every day, you know, when, you, when you're getting guns, everybody says great work. They often see it as like the justice system, the court side of it is not within their control. Mm-hmm. The prosecutors are dropping the ball. The judges are soft on these kinds of things, but they've got a job to do and they're doing their part. Um, but that, uh, you know, fails to recognize the effect that quality policing ultimately can have in court, which is, you know, convictions that bring prison time for these types of offenses. So, yeah, they, they weren't tracking that the way they should have been. 
So the New York Times review of We Own This City said, um, Fenton shows how in our zeal to combat crime, we have allowed institutions to produce it. And in the book, you quote Lieutenant Marjorie German, a former supervisor of Wayne Jenkins, saying that after the corruption scandal was made public, quote, command created the monster and allowed it to go unchecked. What would you say were the factors that contributed to this culture of corruption in the Baltimore Police Department? And is there anything unique about Baltimore or could what happened there happen in any American city? I mean, to answer the last part, I think that absolutely this can happen in any department where, you know, the pressure to get crime down is intense and it falls on, you know, certain officers, certain units, and they give them a lot of leeway and trust. Uh, The lack of oversight here, as I I mentioned, Lieutenant German, who you just quoted, she was the commander I, I mentioned who was working in a different location from Jenkins. And she said that, you know, she... Um, thought he was doing a great job. You know, the, when there was co- some complaints made once, she rode along with him and she personally, you know, saw him. He was driving down the street and saw somebody and pulled around and sure enough, they had a gun. And But Jenkins also cultivated this very deliberately. He, he made a point of sending out emails all to the entire department, boasting of his good work. He had a direct line to some of the commanders. He even called prosecutors in the middle of the night to ask for advice on how to go about something in a legal and ethical way. So th- this is someone who went took a tremendous uh, uh, effort to make sure that people thought he was a top cop and doing things by the book. And the complaints that came in were sort of discarded. The department has this attitude and it's developed over time through experience that a lot of complaints are are, are frivolous. They're, they're filed to sort of disrupt an officer's career, uh, to try to get charges dropped against the person. And that a lot of these things aren't to be trusted or taken seriously. And before body cameras and cell phone cameras and things like that, you know, it was always the, that person's word against the officers. And, and you know, if, if, if it's a toss up, it's going to go to the cop every single time. Um, there was an interesting uh, postscript to this corruption scandal where, you know, all these people started coming forward, making claims against the gun trace task force. There was a press conference that was held in which a man said that he was pulled over, uh, had a gun planted on him and that he was locked up and, and his child actually passed away while he was locked up and he wasn't there for his child's death. It was an awful story. And, you know, in, in the wake of the scandal, we, we want to hear people out. We want to believe them, you know, in a way that they weren't believed before. But that was actually one of my few interactions with Jenkins. My only interaction with Jenkins himself was when he sent me a package that contained a, a CD that showed body camera footage from that man's arrest that showed unequivocally that he did, in fact, have a gun on him. And this guy had come out in the wake of this scandal and made a false claim. Mm-hmm. I guess in a way, um, you know, people were sort of trying to get even, I guess, with these officers who would mistreated them all these years. But, but that type of a false claim is exactly the type of thing that hardens and has hardened over the years the police department to these kinds of claims. They're, um, they, they just have this predisposition to believe that everything is made up and that you have to prove otherwise. I want to resist the suggestion that what happened with the gun trace task force was a bad apple situation. But nonetheless, Wayne Jenkins is a fascinating character, and I'd like to understand him a little better. Do you have any theories about what makes him tick? Why did he do all of the terrible things that he did? And, you know, why were others willing to follow him? I think it just comes down to greed. You know, he was raised in the suburbs of, uh, of Baltimore. He joined the Marine Corps. He uh, wanted to be a police officer, help the community. I think the system created him. You know, I don't know that he was necessarily predisposed to these things. But, you know, again, he enters a police department where 
you know, there's a fractured relationship with the community and a high number volume of arrests is encouraged. And he comes into that and becomes that. Then he gets into these elite plainclothes units where, you know, stealing money didn't start with Wayne Jenkins. It goes back generations. I think it was passed down. We know that he's since this book came out, um, he publicly uh, accused two of his supervisors of also taking part in these types of things. One of his mentors recently testified in federal court about 20 years worth of crimes. You know, I think it's a learned behavior. I think it I, I had someone say to me the, the other day that they thought, you know, this is a person who's a law abiding citizen. You know, they, they question whether if they were in that environment and around large sums of cash, they, they might also have been tempted to skim money. You know, we, we mm-hmm. put officers into this situation and basically trust them. And, you know, people take advantage of that trust. You mentioned bad apples. I mean, bad apple excuse has been the reason why, you know, bigger measures weren't taken with this police department for so many years. We regularly had a single officer getting in trouble. Mm-hmm. The politicians in the police command would always say, well, that was one bad apple and we got them. You know, we caught them. They're being held accountable. But it happened all the time. Right. <laughs> and I, frankly, I cannot believe I don't understand how it took the Justice Department so long to come here and try to clean this department up. There was consent decrees being done in like Pittsburgh and you know even Prince George's County in Maryland and Seattle, places that are not, you know, synonymous with with problems with police departments. And somehow it took until 2015, 2017 for it to be our time. It was never taken seriously. We want to share another story with you that illustrates the nature of the corruption within law enforcement and its impact on community members, especially Black community members. Justin framed We Own This City with the story of Umar Burley, The book opens with Burley's arrest on April 28, 2010, and Justin returns to the story several times. Wayne Jenkins was still a detective at that time, and on that day, his sergeant instructed their plainclothes unit to stay put and not to go out looking to make arrests. But Jenkins was the ultimate jump-out boy, and he ignored these orders and went to the Grove Park neighborhood with his partner, Detective Ryan Ginn. There they spotted Umar Burley sitting in his car. Another black man walked up to the car and got in. Jenkins later reported that the second man appeared to be carrying cash, and he believed a drug deal was taking place. Jenkins, Ginn, and two officers in another car surrounded Burley's car. Ginn got out of his car and drew his gun, and at that point, Umar Burley pulled his car out and fled. He crashed into a fire hydrant and also into another car, injuring an elderly woman and killing her husband. The officers claimed they found 32 grams of heroin in Burley's car, and Burley was arrested on drug charges and manslaughter. He swore the drugs were planted, and his lawyer said that, quote, alleged law enforcement observations of an African-American entering a parked car with money in a high crime area do not add up to probable cause. But ultimately, Umar Burley agreed to a plea deal where he received a 20-year sentence. In 2014, Umar Burley was brought to a courtroom in downtown Baltimore. He didn't know why he was there. In fact, the family of the elderly couple had sued Burley for damages, and because he didn't respond to the suit, the court had ruled by default in favor of the family. So they were there that day only to determine the amount of the damages. Now I'll read from the book, starting with a question from the judge, John Carroll Burns. You're aware a default judgment was entered against you? I don't even know what a default judgment is, Burley reiterated. A lot of things have been done in this case, and this, what I understand, this can affect me not just for now, but my whole lifetime. So this is a very serious matter, so I'm throwing my mercy on the court so I can get an attorney in this matter. It's not unreasonable that you thought maybe you'd get a free attorney in a case like this, Burns said. 
But the answer is you don't. Burns continued explaining the process of how the judgment came to be. Do you understand what I'm saying so far? He said, I'm not asking you to agree with me, but do you understand it? No, I don't understand. What part don't you understand, sir? Burley said he didn't understand any of it. The judge said, I think you understand it, to be honest with you, because what I said is really not that complicated. It goes on like that, and ultimately the family was awarded $1,092,500. After that, Umar Burley spent three more years in jail, insisting the drugs were planted, trying to get his case overturned, an emotional wreck, having never met his grandchildren who were born while he was incarcerated. Finally, in 2017, after the gun trace task force scandal broke, he was brought to a federal courthouse where two of the investigating officers told him, quote, you don't have to say anything. We already know that they set you up. We already know how they did it. A few weeks later, he was freed. This is the type of corruption and injustice that contributed to the murder of Freddie Gray in April 2015, which occurred two years before the gun trace task force scandal broke. You'll likely recall Freddie Gray's story. He was 25 years old, a black man who was stopped by police and arrested for legally possessing a knife. He died after being transported bound and unsecured in a police van to the station. Two weeks of protests and riots ensued, and six officers were charged with his murder and ultimately either acquitted or had charges dropped. We asked Justin how what happened with Freddie Gray intersected with the Gun Trace Task Force story. Here's what he said. After the death of Freddie Gray, all those assurances that the department was doing just fine, that there was just bad apples, that all went out the window. And we were going to enter this period of reform. The Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department was conducting a widespread investigation of discriminatory practices. They were doing ride-alongs. They were picking through files. You know, they had their eyes on this department. And, and all eyes, by the way, were also on the Freddie Gray case itself. The trial of the officers who killed Freddie Gray, it just captivated so much attention. And there's so much talk of um, po- police brutality and misconduct. And yet this was happening. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I did when I started to try to figure out how am I going to write a book about this, I created a, a, a timeline. I wanted to see exactly that. How did things intersect? How do they fit together? One of the things that really, you know, made my jaw hit the floor was that the day the civil rights uh, units report on the department that found that officers didn't use probable cause to stop people, conducted illegal searches, disproportionately stopped black people. The gun trace task force went out that night and pulled over as many people as they could, often, you know, violating their rights, you know, the same night. And I think it just spoke to sort of how, how much that was ingrained into the work and how little they they feared getting caught. And so I, I think it's such a, a seminal moment for our city. You know, it, it, it caused people to be much more aware of these issues. Um, it, it also was a turning point. It's not Freddie Gray's fault, but it's a fact that the violence in the city exploded after that. Literally that month, our violence skyrocketed and has not looked back in seven years since. There's so much that was building towards that moment and that has played out uh, since. Did racism within the Baltimore Police Department play a role in the culture of corruption? You know, one thing that a lot of people have pointed out is that, uh, you know, a lot of these officers involved in the scandal are are black officers themselves. I think there's just a general racism that exists in law enforcement in terms of profiling and and sort of uh, uh, disrespect for certain communities. And I think that absolutely plays a major role. 
Self-policing is always hard in any context, not just law enforcement. But do you think it's possible to have a healthy, high-functioning internal affairs division? And if so, what does that look like? As far as whether it can be done, I'm not sure. I can tell you some of the things we're doing now, though, that I think are interesting. I sat in on a, a ComStat meeting. This is a weekly meeting with commanders. I've ne- actually never been allowed to attend a ComStat meeting in 15 years of covering law enforcement in Baltimore. But they, they let me attend it. And I, the first portion of the meeting was spent not talking about crime and, and stats and things like that, but compliance with policies. They had done audits, and they do audits regularly of whether people are turning on their body cameras, whether they're you know putting the proper title on the body camera clip, all kinds of things. It's all with the intention of sort of saying, if you're doing these things, if you're, if you're making sure you follow the policies to the letter, hopefully we can catch you when you break the policies. Hopefully, you know, it will create this new way of looking at the job, which isn't about simply going out, arresting people, you know, racking up stats. But like, are, are you doing the things you're supposed to? And they've beefed up the number of internal affairs investigators significantly. Um, they've taken 550 uses of force between 2018 and 2020. And they are reviewing the body cameras. They're reviewing the the reports to make sure they were filled out correctly. You know, make sure they were signed off on by supervisors. It feels as though it's a new era. I guess the question I often ask myself is how will we sort of know that it's better? Because I think that you're not going to eliminate negative interactions with with police. They're they're going to occur. And it's just like, how, how will we know that they're occurring at a level that I think the the community you know finds that the police department has has turned a corner. I'm not sure how we're going to be able to quantify that. We own this city is now an HBO series that's executive produced by David Simon, who created The Wire. For a Baltimore guy with a Baltimore story, that must be like the holy grail. <laughs> Congratulations! What is your involvement with the show, and what's it been like to see your book translated into a TV series with a 93% on Rotten Tomato? Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I mean, honestly, it's amazing. I, I, I grew up watching Homicide Life on the Street on NBC on Friday nights. <laughs> you know, even when I wasn't aware I wanted to become a reporter or cover crime or anything like that, I just really thought that show was was neat and different. Mm-hmm. And I got to know David over the years. He he lives in my neighborhood. So we would talk over the years about things he was hearing about the police department or questions he had about my reporting. And he actually reached out to me during the Gun Trace Task Force trial and said, man, you got to write a book. Uh, that was not something I was thinking of. I, I, I mm. have not ever aspired to be an author. I'm a journalist, and that's something that consumes my waking, every waking moment. And he said, no, no, this story requires that. And he actually introduced me to his book agent. Um, and then I had to go about the process of trying to get it, put together a proposal, um, which was very difficult. And so I was shipping around this proposal with the idea that it was likely going to be made into an HBO show by David Simon and George Pelicanos. And for a year, I hadn't, didn't have any takers. And I really thought, wow, wow I'm going to blow, I'm going to blow this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to blow this. I think there was a lack of confidence that I, as a newspaper journalist, could deliver. That was one of the things I kept hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was a humbling experience. Everything ultimately has gone really well. But there was a humbling experience there for a year where I was <laughs> rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and, and hiring, you know, editors to help me edit the, the, the proposal. But it all worked out. Then I got to be involved as a consultant. I got to be in the writer's room and sort of help make sure that they understood the scandal, make sure they understood the, the quote unquote characters, 
And I would uh, often like sort of throw out real life things for my reporting, even sometimes things that didn't make the book. Uh, I would sort of throw out there and say, hey, you might want to consider this if you're trying to make that point. Mm. And there was one great scene and I tried to find it in my book and it wasn't there. And I was like, why didn't I put that in the book? <laughs> because it is in my notes. It's something that I have in my notes, but I didn't I, I didn't write it. But yeah. I have no idea why. There's always the one that got away. Right. Yeah. 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 You tend to write deep investigative pieces that tackle some of the worst kinds of crimes, including how Baltimore police officers investigate sexual assaults, the high homicide rate in Baltimore, the murder investigation of two teenage boys in rural Maryland, and of course, there's the story of the Gun Trace Task Force. What draws you to this kind of reporting? You know, I think um, they're inherently dramatic, inherently troubling. I've found the work to be very propulsive in the sense that every day there's something else happening and we got to keep covering it. And so I try to find, you know, stories that need to be investigated that, that maybe tell a deeper story. I try to pick stories that I think tell something larger without necessarily, you know, beating people over the head with that. And I feel like after 15 years of doing this, I'm still learning. The, the more I know, I feel like almost the, the less I understand. And I like to paint things as complex, you know, because I think that things are not um, often as simple as, you know, different sides make them out to be. In a time like this of memes and tweets and sound bites, I'm so appreciative of deep investigative work like Justin's that doesn't try to simplify complicated things. It's such hard work and such important work. I'm glad that we get to play even a small part in sharing some of the critical information that he's uncovered. And I'm going to say that that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Justin on Twitter at Justin underscore Fenton, and you can find his writing at the Baltimore Banner. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love and listen to book dreams with Julia.